Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 5 to 37. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your, your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is, is on it, the seas that, and all is that, that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, and Chaldeans, and named him Abraham. You, fa- you found his heart faithful to you, and made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry, uh, your, their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so that they had, so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths, like like a stone into the mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are, are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to, known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn, you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to, to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them, gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued them before the Canaanites, who lived in the land, 
You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the people of their land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They they reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From, from heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them de- uh, deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, and they again did what, our, what, what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, that, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they, but, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. Uh, so you gave them into the hands of the, of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling to your, to your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the kings, kings of Assyria until today, In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully, uh, while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you, you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them, in the in this spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see. We are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat it, so that they could eat its fruits and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Well, who do you go to when things go bad? When everything goes pear-shaped and you get absolutely stuck, who do you go to? Back when I was in high school, my friends and I had an agreement that if we ever got in trouble with the police or any kind of people in authority, uh, we would just say uh, that our parents were Mr and Mrs Kirby. And uh, we just all made this pact that they were the parents that we would say were our parents. Um, We figured that of all of the sets of parents... Uh, They would be coolest with the law if anything went wrong. Uh, They would be able to handle the situation without freaking out. And so uh, if ever we were in trouble, um, we had their landline phone number memorised and uh, we would uh, get them to take us around to their place instead of our own parents. 
I'm not quite sure why we thought lying to the police would help any situation that we got ourselves into, but that was our plan. Who is on your list? Who do you call if things get to their darkest place? Do you go to God? Is he the one you run to when you have messed up, when life messes you up? Is he the one you go to? There's a million things to say about God from the Old Testament and a million ways that we should respond uh, to what we see tonight, Uh, but most of all I want us to see this, that God is the one that we cry out to in devotion to him and in desperation, in our need. He is the one we cry to in exaltation for all that he is and for salvation when we are desperate. He is the one to cry out to. We're going to see that in the Old Testament. Let's get into it. Uh, If the Bible reveals God to us, then it reveals four big things about him uh, in four big movements in the story. Uh, We're going to see the God who relates, the God who redeems, the God who reigns, and the God who restores. First up, the Bible introduces us to the God who relates. And he relates because he's the creator. Genesis 1, he is the creator of everything. The creator of the galaxies, the creator of the guinea pigs, the creator of the sun, the creator of the sunflower. Everything, from biggest to smallest. Now, you might believe that, but there's, it's possible that you could believe that he's the creator and still think that God is far off that he's like a watchmaker, that he kind of puts it all together and he winds it up and then he sets it off and he stands back from his creation. But he's not like that. He's a God who relates. He creates people in his image, he says, like him with the capacity to love and to relate. Psalm 139 uh, says this, says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows us intimately. And did you know that's you? That there is a God who made you and who loves you. There is a God who knows you and wants you to know him. Ecclesiastes says that uh, God has set eternity in the hearts of people. As you go through the Old Testament, you find this wisdom literature which uh, tells us truths about our world and our experience. And it says that God has set eternity in our hearts, that we have a longing for more, for, for things beyond ourselves, a longing for meaning and eternal things. And it's a longing for God himself to be rightly related to him. And so we're made for a relationship. But humans, it turns out, are relationship breakers. That's the next thing the Bible uh, points out to us. And that's true, isn't it? Who here hasn't had some kind of falling out or a, a relationship that goes bad or been hurt by someone? It's just a foundational truth that we are relationship breakers. You get to the third chapter of the Bible And Adam and Eve disobey God. 
they bring shame on themselves and they create this chasm, this, this enormous gulf between the creator God and the humans that he's made. And so the whole of the, the Old Testament is about what God does to bridge that gap, to reconnect that relationship uh, between God and people. And it starts with a promise. Uh, God makes a promise to one couple, Abraham and Sarah, and he promises them a special relationship, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And that through that special relationship, that, that relationship that he, he makes, uh, he might work to restore his relationship with the whole world that's gone astray. Here's what God says to Abraham in Genesis 17. He says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you. See, that the, the start of this, this special relationship, reconnecting God and people between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And so uh, if you want to know what's in the Old Testament, well, it's the story of this people. Uh, the Old Testament focuses in on, on one people, the people of Abraham, the people of Israel. And it asks the question, how? How is it that God is going to use this people to restore his relationship with the whole world that has rejected him? And the answer to that question comes in Jesus. Really, the, the answer is found only when you get to the New Testament, in the Creator stepping into creation to connect with the world that has gone astray, to dwell amongst us. But for that, you need to come back in two weeks. That's part two. Uh, for now, I want us to see that uh, this is the reason why we cry out to God, because he has made us because we are his creatures, because he has this promise that he wants to relate to us as our God. And so we are able to cry out to him. He's the God who relates. Uh, the next phase of the Old Testament is to show us the God who redeems. The God who redeems. Uh, the story... Um, in the Bible from here, uh, takes God's people down into Egypt and into slavery under Pharaoh. And it's here in, in the book of Exodus that we find out that God is a God who redeems. Uh, the idea of redeeming something is, it comes from the world of slavery. Basically, if someone was a slave, you could pay an amount of money to the slave owner and it would release that person from slavery. You could essentially just buy them out of slavery. You redeemed them with a price. And that's what God does for his people. The Israelites cry out to God in their desperation as slaves and God hears them and he responds. This is uh, in Exodus, Exodus chapter 6. Uh, this is his response. He says to Moses, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. God is a redeemer. In the Passover, he provides the lamb and they paint the blood of the lamb on the door frames. And so God uh, passes over them in his judgment and instead brings his judgment on Egypt and is able to rescue them out of Egypt, 
He redeems them with the blood of the Lamb. God is a redeemer, but not just in that moment, although that is the big moment of redemption in the Old Testament, but all the way through. We keep seeing the God who works to redeem his people, to rescue them out from under the hands of their enemies. And even in individuals, you have foreigners like like Ruth the Moabite who's brought in to the people of God. Rahab the prostitute who changes sides and joins with God's people. God is a redeemer as you read through the Old Testament. But God's redemption isn't just about rescuing them from Egypt. He rescues them to something as well. He rescues them from Egypt, but he brings them to himself. Uh, That's how redemption works. It's a purchase. You you get them out from the slave owner, uh, but then that person has bought the slave. They go from belonging to Pharaoh to belonging to God. And so further on in Exodus, Exodus 19, here's what God says. He says to his people, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's a beautiful picture. It's like, yeah, a bird sweeping down and carrying them off. But he doesn't just carry them off and just drop them and leave them. He, he brings them to himself. We've come back around to this special relationship for Abraham's people. Israel are to be a treasured possession, belonging to God. He has redeemed them for that purpose. And do you know that's you? If you are a Christian, then you have been redeemed. You turn to the New Testament and a better redemption has happened. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You weren't bought out of slavery just with gold, with money, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You have been redeemed at a much higher price even than the blood of a lamb. Redeemed, purchased for God out of slavery to sin. Did you know that is you? As you read through the Old Testament and you hear stories of redemption and God's work to rescue his people, then if you are trusting in Jesus, then that has happened to you in him. And so your life is not your own, actually. You're his. You belong to God. And really that ought to change everything. Every decision you make, every word you say, every dollar you spend, every app you open, every desire that you grow, every relationship that you start, every morning that you wake, you are his. He has redeemed you by his son. The Old Testament will shout that out at you as you read through it. He is the God who relates and he is the God who redeems people back into special relationship with him. And can you see how that is a a great reason why we should cry out to him? Because he is for us. He's our redeemer. Uh, All through the Old Testament, that is the basis on which Israel cries out to God. 
Because they look back to the Exodus and they say, God, you're our Redeemer. You're the one that we can count on. So will you work to save us now? Uh, The reason why we knew we could uh, call on the Kirbys was that they were always on our side. They were always for us. And so how much more with God? So now Israel uh, belonged to God. He's rescued them out uh, from Egypt. And so now their job is to live as God's people. And so part three uh, of the Old Testament, the God who reigns. Uh, Really, you could say this about the the whole of the Old Testament story. It's uh, about God's reign, about him being king over everything. He reigns in the garden as he gives his instructions to Adam and Eve. He reigns over Pharaoh as he saves his people and, and, and works to rescue them. And now he reigns over Israel as he gives them the law. And so he tells them how they are to live as his redeemed people. And so if you've got a Bible there, let's take a little brain break and just do some, some physical work. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. And then like, keep your finger in that and flick forward like 100 pages or so and grab the chunk between Exodus 20 and the end of Deuteronomy. You'll pick up Leviticus and all the sacrificial laws. You'll pick up Numbers and the instructions to the priests. You'll pick up Deuteronomy, which is like the second legal code. So that chunk of your Bible, uh, that, is, that is like the, the covenant law. That is God's instructions to his people as to how they are to live in the land that he's giving them. And God rules over them by his word. And it tells them how they're to live. And that's really helpful to see just how big a chunk that is. Um, because this is really important, how they're to live out their life as God's people. But, we heard this in Nehemiah 9, didn't we? That just like Adam and Eve, Israel, over and over again, they disobey God's word. Uh, In Hub, uh, this semester, one of our little activities was to um, write a review of the the Old Testament covenant um, as if it was like a movie. And um, our group had a lot of fun with it. Your group might remember it as well. Um, essentially, the movie review was like, yeah, it was a bit repetitive. Um, the plot didn't seem to go anywhere. It kept on coming back to the same, same point. Because that's what happens. That They have the law, but then they disobey. And so God punishes them or, or sends correction, sends his prophets to call them back, and then they return to the word, but then they, they break it again. Israel, go on breaking the relationship that God has established. God's reign gets rejected and rejected time and again until we go forward in history and we reach this key moment in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And what happens is God's people ask for a human king to rule over them. And it's a really telling moment. Look how God responds. Uh, He's talking to Samuel the prophet and the Lord told Samuel... Uh, Listen to all the people are saying to you. Listen to them. They're asking for a king. Do what they they want. He says, it's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. 
God says they have rejected me as their king. See, he is the God who reigns. He is the king over Israel. In fact, he's the king over the world, of which Israel is meant to be like a a kind of a mini model. But they reject him as king. And the plot is so repetitive, over and over, they reject God and his reign. They've done it from day one, ever since Egypt, it says. Forsaking God and following other gods. And so God gives them a king, but it is still his reign. Uh, God instead moves to reign through his king. And so the history of Israel from that point is one of trying to work out how the king's going to do this. Are they going to be faithful to the Lord or will they run after other gods? And so you read through the rest of the history of the Old Testament uh, in Kings or Chronicles and you see over and over again the kings who are meant to know God's word, who are meant to lead God's people in following God's word, they are the ones who go astray run off after other gods, try to be just like the nations around them. Or you read the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and again and again you read the story of unfaithful people who don't just run away from God but are full of injustice and greed towards one another, who keep on breaking that special relationship. And so the Bible is like the search for the reign of God. How will God's reign be established? And the hero is Jesus. That as he comes into our world, he is the ultimate person who isn't driven by by greed or selfishness, who doesn't run off after other gods, or serve things besides the Creator. He lives rightly under God's rule. But he also comes as the ultimate king, the one that God has appointed as the ruler of everything. When Jesus is born, he is born into King David's family line because he is the inheritor of the throne. When he starts to teach, in Mark chapter 1, he says, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. See, the kingdom of God has come near because the king has come near. Jesus himself brings God's reign. And did you know that's you? If you call yourself a Christian... That means that you live under his rule. As you live to please him, as you listen to his word, as you take on his law of love, you are living under the reign of King Jesus. When we pray together, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. We don't just pray that meaning like out there, would your kingdom come elsewhere? We're praying for us. Would your kingdom come in here? Reign over me. Reign over us in our lives. See, in Christ, we come under the God who reigns.
And that's why Israel are able to cry out to their God, because they cry out on the basis that the Lord reigns over everything, that he's sovereign, that he's able to act to their good. And we cry out in the same way. We cry out to a God with power to work all things for our eternal good. The Old Testament shows us the God who relates, the God who redeems, the God who reigns, and finally we see the God who restores. This final movement. As Israel's history goes on, uh, they go on rejecting God's rule. And we, we saw that in the Nehemiah re- reading, that it kind of doesn't matter which king's in charge, they, they keep on rejecting God. God sends prophets and he warns them. And he patiently calls them back. But in the end, they refuse and God punishes them by sending foreign nations, the Assyrians and the uh, Babylonians. They come come down and they take over the nation of Israel, destroy their cities and take the people away into captivity. It's another kind of phase of the Old Testament known as the exile and it's the next crucial event in the history of Israel because it's a crisis on a whole other level. Back when they were slaves in Egypt, right, they had nothing. They, they, they were nobodies. They were just slaves in a foreign country. But now, somehow, this is worse. This is way worse because they had everything They had everything. They had God's law. They had God with them in the temple to meet with them. They had the promised land. They had this special relationship and they threw it all away. Kind of like uh, that story that you've heard a thousand times, the the sporting star who who has everything, you know, the money, the fame and the success and then they just blow it all up with drugs and gambling and, and go off the rails and it's, it's more tragic because of the heights that they fall from. And that's what happens to Israel. This is from the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament, from chapter 1. It's, the, the whole book is a, a lament over what's happened in this phase of their, their history in the exile. And you can see how far they've fallen, how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. We're back to slavery. God responds to the rejection of his people. Rejecting him, he responds with punishment. As Israel goes along, as you, as you read through the Old Testament, you see Israel test the utmost limits of God's grace and his patience until he is forced to act. But even then, even then, even after he's punished them, he will not let them go. He's the God who restores. He's willing to reinstate them, to give them a fresh start. Even Lamentations will say, still I have this hope. 
His compassions are new every morning. He's not given up on us, they say. He's willing to give them a fresh start. And so the prophets, as you go on reading through uh, the Old Testament, they start uh, looking forward to this time when God will restore them. They say it's going to be like a second exodus, kind of like the first exodus where God rescued us out of Egypt, but even better this time. Jeremiah says uh, people are going to stop talking about the exodus. That's going to be small fry compared to what God is going to do in restoring us from Babylon. And the prophets start looking even further ahead. They start uh, talking about a new covenant where God will actually reform their hearts, give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And they look and they see how God will create a new heavens and a new earth, uh, not just restore them to the land of Israel, but this picture of a new world where God reigns with peace and justice. Uh, In 1986... The Chernobyl nuclear reactor exploded and it caused an uncontrollable nuclear meltdown, a kind of chain reaction that caused the the, the core of the the power plant to melt down and just send radioactive material out everywhere. And to deal with it, the Soviet Union um, put a huge concrete shed over it. That was their solution, just like keep that radioactive material in. And then they set up a a 30-kilometre exclusion zone all around it. And that's still there. Basically, no one's ever going to go back there. And that's all they could do. And sin is like that. Idolatry is like that. Worshipping anything other than the Creator God is like that. It is a nuclear meltdown for our relationship with the God who made us. Contaminates everything. But the Old Testament gives a promise of restoration that is, goes, goes far beyond just shutting it all down, right? Uh, it's, it's like if Chernobyl was, was restored, cleaned, the soil dug up and, and rehabilitated, the, the toxic materials taken out and, and then new buildings put up and gardens planted and a city rebuilt in its place. God's promise of restoration looks like that, like recreation. But it's a promise that the Old Testament itself doesn't see fulfilled. The prophets just uh, look ahead to it and see it in the distance. But the New Testament says that restoration comes in Jesus. Actually, Jesus is the one who who brings the light of that restoration as he heals people and he shows what that new world will be like. As he brings forgiveness at the cross, he cleans and restores us. And as he sends his spirit, he starts that new creation life now. And did you know that's you? Did you know that's you? If you are trusting in Jesus, then he has started that new creation life in you now. Here's how 2 Corinthians 5 puts it. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. It has started within you. The old has gone. 
the new is here, as you begin to live a life oriented towards God and the eternal inheritance that he has for you. The Old Testament is the story of uh, one nation. It follows the, the story of the people of Abraham, the people of Israel. Uh, and it follows that one storyline. And as it goes, God reveals who he is, not just to them, but to the world. And their storyline uh, ultimately finishes in Jesus, the one who restores that broken relationship between God and the world that he's made. And so did you know that's you? If you are a Christian, that because of Jesus, the Old Testament promises uh, that begin all the way back in Genesis, they find their fulfilment in us, in those who belong to Jesus as God's people and the God that you meet along the way in the Old Testament. If you know Christ, then he is your God too, the God who relates, the God who redeems the God who reigns, and the God who restores. Uh, That's our uh, jet journey through the Old Testament. But before we finish, uh, I want us to see the action, the action to take. Um, How do we respond to this kind of flyover of the whole Old Testament? I don't want us to leave and kind of think, oh, that was interesting, a bit unusual. I want us to leave with, with, with some action. And it's there in our reading from Nehemiah 9. So if you kept your finger in there the whole time, it's going to pay off. Uh, Nehemiah 9. Uh, if you've closed it, Nehemiah is a tricky one to find, so I'll give you a sec. But what do they do? As, as they go through this, this whole history... I want us to do what they do as they look through the whole history of Israel. They cry out to God in devotion and in desperation. And you see both of them there. See how it starts in verse 5? The Levites said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. See, God is worthy of our praise. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He alone is God. He is the restorer of all things. And when you launch into a history of what God has done, you need to launch into praise. When we see everything that God has achieved, all that he is, we need to sing about it. We need to to share our our honour and glory with one another to say it to God because of who he is. You can't survey the Old Testament and not respond in devotion. We ought to be drawn into that just as Israel are, as they gather together there in Nehemiah 9, they say, blessed be your glorious name. You alone are the Lord. They recognise him as creator. But also look at how this chapter finishes. They go through uh, the whole uh, story of of Abraham and and Egypt, coming out of Egypt, being rescued, being taken into the land. They they talk about the exile to uh, Syria and Babylon. And now they're they're back in the land, but they're still stuck, still kind of under foreign powers. And it finishes, verse 37, we are in great distress. 
We are in great distress. And so they cry out to God. That's what they do. They're desperate. They're still desperate. And so they cry out to the one who is able to save. God alone is able to save. And so that is our cry too, in our desperation. We know we can't save ourselves. We know we can't uh, bring forgiveness. But God is the God who redeems. He's the God of forgiveness and a fresh start. When we mess up and when life messes us up, He is the one that we are to cry to, especially when we're desperate. He's the God who redeems and restores. Uh, The difference for us, as opposed to Israel, is that when we cry out, uh, we cry out in Jesus' name. We cry out to God knowing what he has done to redeem us in Jesus. We cry out to God knowing that he has appointed Jesus as the ruler over everything, that he is the one who reigns. And we cry out to him knowing that he is the one who will return to restore our world. So will you do that? Next time you fall into sin, next time you feel crushed by your own unworthiness, when you feel desperate, will you cry out to your Redeemer? The Old Testament would have us know our God as the one who wants to relate to us and who is able to rescue us, to save us. So will you do as they do in Nehemiah 9, when they are desperate, when they say we are in great distress, cry out to the same one who is able to again and again forgive us and restore us. We're going to finish now uh, by by praying, by crying out to God, uh, asking for his help uh, with the things that we need uh, for ourselves, for our world, for our gospel partners.